0: Sport Clips haircut stylists understand how to make guys look their best based on their facial shape, hair texture, and lifestyle. Whether you got a scruffy beard, a big thick beard, uh, you want to grow your hair out long, you want to keep it close and cropped, Sport Clips has tools, training, and expertise to make guys look their best. Check out the MVP haircut experience too. It's the most relaxing haircut experience ever. Sport Clips, the pro in men's hair. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Running is a gloriously democratic and accessible sport. All you need is a pair of shoes and the will to start moving your legs. It's so seemingly simple that you may never think to figure out how you might get better at it. Just follow what your peers may be doing Who may not know anything more than you do Or pick up tips that percolate through social media Which may not be accurate Or 100% wing it Just vaguely trying to get a little faster each time you run My guest says that rather than taking a willy-nilly approach To your recreational running You can greatly improve your performance By learning from the professionals Who actually run for a living His name is Matt Fitzgerald And he's a sports writer, a running coach And the co-author of Run Like a Pro Even if you're slow Elite tools and tips for runners at every level Today on the show, Matt translates the best practice of elite runners, the tactics the amateur can incorporate into their training, beginning with why you need to follow a well-programmed running plan, how to find the sweet spot for your running volume, including why you should actually concentrate more on the amount of time you run rather than the miles, and the number of hours Matt recommends trying to work up to running each week if you'd like to really see what you can do as a runner. We then discussed the ratio of low-intensity to high-intensity workouts you should be doing, the surprisingly small emphasis pros put on running form, what the pros know about what works best for recovery, and the edge you can get through cross-training. We end our conversation with a difference in mindset that marks elite runners, including how they're probably better quitters than you are. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awim.is run. Matt Fitzgerald, welcome back to the show. Great to be back. So you have been a runner pretty much all your life. You've also written about running extensively as a journalist. You've written several books about running. You've become a coach. You got certified nutrition to help runners. So basically, you you know a lot about running. You've made it your life's work in a way. So why did you decide to go live with a bunch of professional runners in 2017? Like, What did you see lacking in your own running performance that you thought you could probably fill in those gaps by hanging out with a bunch of pro runners?
1: You know the first thing is that I think athletes in pretty much any sport fantasize about going pro at some point, you know, especially if you discover your sport young. You know, I started running when I was 11 and you know I wasn't the most gifted runner, so I figured out pretty quickly I wasn't going to the Olympics, but still I dreamed about it, you know, how cool it would be to have a pro shoe contract and travel around the world racing for a living. Didn't work out that way, but then you know so when I got deep into my career as a an endurance sports writer and coach you know, I have an interesting experience where I have sort of like one foot in the recreational world, like, you know, almost all the athletes I coach and write for are, are recreational level competitive, but, you know, amateur. And then, you know, I do a lot of my learning from the elites. And I notice that most of recreational runners kind of have no idea what the elites actually do. And because they don't know, they're not doing it themselves. And I've always been a big believer in kind of a, what I call a best practices approach to, you know, developing in any sport, including endurance sports. So when I was 45, about to turn 46, I just got this idea into my head to guinea pig myself to kind of put my money where my mouth was and and prove as, you know, this 46 year old, you know, above average, but still, you know, amateur runner that by fully immersing myself in these elite best practices, just completely living their entire lifestyle that I could benefit from it. And just, I wanted to show that you, know, you don't have to be born with elite genetics to benefit from emulating you know, the top performers.
0: So what happened with your experience? Like, like Was there like a race you did that kind of showed that, okay, what I did worked?
1: Yeah. So I spent 13 weeks with the Hoka Northern Arizona Elite Professional Running Team in Flagstaff, Arizona. So that was like a complete marathon training cycle. And at the end of that buildup, I ran the Chicago Marathon. Interestingly, the the agent for the team, a guy named Josh Cox, he pulled some strings and got me a professional bib. Uh, So I had a two-digit number. I got to start, you know, Chicago Marathon is like 40,000 runners. And I got to start like in row three, right up, you know, within touching distance of the guy and the gal who ended up up winning the race. I did not, but I did undergo uh, like an astonishing transformation. I I aged in reverse. I, I ran my fastest marathon ever. It was about my 40th or 41st marathon. And I, I beat a time that I thought I would never come anywhere close to again, it, you know, improved by two minutes, a time I had set nine years before, and hadn't gotten within nine minutes of since. So to say that you know, I, I proved what I set out to prove is an understatement. <laughs>
0: Right. now, That's impressive. So as you said, you've kind of had your feet in two worlds. You've had it in the world, the, the pro world where you're writing about these pro runners, but also you're coaching amateur runners. And what you've done with your book, Run Like a Pro, Even If You're Slow, is show amateur runners the principles that elite runners use to perform at their best, that they're just as applicable to amateur runners. But before we get to some of these principles, let's talk about the differences you've seen between pro runners and amateur runners and how they approach running. So what are the differences? Like an amateur runner, what are they doing differently than what pro runners are doing?
1: You know, the, the first thing that anyone would think of would is running a lot less, right? So that's obvious. But I guess, you know, the thing I would say, that's a good opportunity to mention that when I say that everyone should train like the elites, I don't mean that you should not just train, but kind of like, you know, Practice all the same methodologies as the elites. I don't mean that you should like literally match them in every detail. Like, you know, the typical, you know, elite runner runs 120, 130 miles per week. That would destroy most people. So it's not that sort of literal monkey see, monkey do I'm talking about, but emulating the underlying principles. So, you know, so the principle behind volume for the elites is they find the maximum. The amount of running that benefits their fitness maximally. So you know, just before they get to that point of not diminishing returns, but negative returns, and they so they they find that limit, and then they sit just one step on the safe side of it. Most you know, even though most recreational runners couldn't run as much as the elites, they also don't run as much as they themselves could benefit from doing. And because it, they typically just think, oh well, you know, I'm slow. What's the point? So that's an obvious one. Some of the stuff that's, I guess, you know, less obvious, like even some of the stuff that I myself, as a very serious and experienced competitive runner, wasn't really doing before I got to Flagstaff. Just kind of like, uh, you know, more complex, well thought out warm ups. You know, I, I would just, you know, work at my desk for three hours, get up, lace up my shoes, get out the door, start running. You know, a pro runner is mo- more likely to you know get up from the desk change into their running gear and then do some activation exercises to just you know warrior lunges and and stuff to kind of wake up their body and and get it ready to move then they would do a little bit of jogging then they would probably do a more dynamic warm up like some drills and some some ex- short accelerations and then they would get into the meat of their workout so Just, you know, it's, it's, I get it. You know, most people, they feel like, oh man, I barely have time for the running. I got to do all that other stuff. But, you know, like the, the proof of the pudding is in the tasting. And, you know, when I started doing all these other little ancillary things that I had, you know, had been cutting corners on before I I improved.
0: No, yeah. That was one of the big take. We'll talk about this too, but just how not hard pro runners go. I think a lot of amateur runners, at least when I've done running, when I've prepared for like a 5k or like an obstacle race, I just like my my approach to running is like I'm just gonna go as hard as I can and I'm gonna just be huffing and puffing. And pro runners don't really do that. They actually take it pretty easy.
1: Yes. You know, about 80% of the time. Yeah. That honestly is probably the most costly discrepancy in how amateur runners train compared to the pros. So I call it the moderate intensity rut, where you know, pretty much every Run that you know the typical recreational runner does is not really easy. Not it's not you know it's not at a physiologically low intensity, but it's also not that hard either. You know because uh, think about it if you're going medium hard every day, you don't have anything left to go really hard. And so you know whereas the typical recreational runner is caught in this moderate intensity rut. For the elite runners, their training is more polarized in intensity where their easy days are really easy and their hard days are really hard and there's not all that much in the middle.
0: Okay. We'll get back to volume and intensity here in a bit, but I want to start digging in more into specifics that amateur runners can learn from the pros by starting with why you say even recreational runners need a credibly sourced running plan. And you've got lots of plans in your book. Because I think, I mean, a lot of folks, I think when they start running, they just sort of run to gain some sort of general fitness. They might vaguely try to get faster each time and you can get fit enough to finish a 5k race that way. But if you really want to improve your performance, like you want to do well, you argue that you you have to have a specific training plan for the specific distance of race you're going to run because you don't just want to get generally fit. You want to time your progression with your training. So that you're peaking around race time, so you can perform your best when it really counts, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. So I think you know a lot of people they come to running from you know like a a background in general fitness, and in that domain you have this sort of get fit, stay fit mentality, right? So like you get off the couch, you you get a gym membership, you start working out, and eventually you start getting the results you want, and then you just try to maintain them, right? That's actually very different from what you're trying to do in competitive running where you're actually, you know, peak fitness is not a sustainable state. You know, if you really want to be at your best, you know, for, for one competition in the lead up to it, you need to build up to a level of training that, you know, they refer to it as uh, functional overreaching where you're still benefiting from it. But if you kept doing it, you would crash. (laughs) And then, so the idea is to like, you know, time that, that functional overreaching period so that you taper right after that. So you build up to that peak. It's not sustainable, but that's okay because you're not trying to sustain it. Then for one to three weeks, you bring it down and then you you're really fit and you're really fresh. You compete and then you need a break. (laughs) Then you need time off before you can start a fresh buildup. You know, again, that's with that timing element and the specificity of the, of the kind of fitness that you're trying to build, you know, winging it is just very unlikely uh, to get you there. Or even a plan built by someone who doesn't know a lot about running.
0: Well, okay, yeah, that's an important point, the, the planning that goes on. It, pro runners not only plan like, like they're running, but they actually they plan in like what you, we can call them deload weeks, where they're just taking time off so that they, they can recover and continue the training. And I think a lot of amateurs yeah. do that.
1: Yes, cuz you what you're really doing is um you know like moments of unsustainable workloads all along the way, right? So, you know if you try to train a little bit harder each week than the week before, you're only going to be able to keep doing that even if you're young and fit and durable, you know, for you know maybe 8 weeks tops before you hit a wall. But if you if you do take sort of a, a three steps forward, one voluntary, intentional plan, step back <laughs> approach, then you can actually attain a higher eventual peak workload without breaking down.
0: Okay. So I guess the principle there plan things out and also expect this to take months. It's not going to just be like, you know, you can't just train from workout to workout. You have to think. Weeks, even months in advance. I think that's the big. I think that might be a hard shift for amateur runners to make because it it's not very rewarding. I mean, honestly, they'll be like, "Wow, man, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna run slower than I usually do." Like, well, I'm <laughs> moving, but like you got to keep that long term perspective in your view. Yeah, it's worth it. Yeah. So you mentioned that one thing the pros do differently from amateurs is that they just they just run a lot more. The meeting's like 120 miles a week. But what about like the average Joe? Right, like how much should they be running? Um, I mean, I'm guessing it depends on their personal circumstances,
1: right? Yeah, because because you know, I use this phrase in the book: your mileage sweet spot. So that's the underlying principle: is that you know, and this is uh, you know, my co-author of this book, Ben Rosario, the coach of of the professional team I trained with in in 2017. He makes this point, like he gives examples of specific individual runners on his team. You know, there's one who goes all the way up to 140 miles some weeks. And then there's another runner on the same team who competes in some of the the same events who only runs 65 to 70 miles per week. So about half. And it's because one of the runners is very durable and the other one isn't. But they're both, you know, granted, 65 to 70 miles a week is still plenty. But the underlying principle, the thing that they're both doing, even though the numbers belie it, is is they have both found their mileage sweet spot. And you know, I hinted at that, what that really is earlier in our, in our conversation. It's, you know, it's that it's the volume of running that is associated with your maximal returns. So you know, at some point you, you get diminishing returns all along the way. So that, that's what I'm talking about. Like if you go from 10 to 20 miles per week, you're going to get much more return than if you go from 20 to 30. And if you go from, you know, 30 to 40, you're going to get less return than you you know, would before. So you, the, the returns are diminishing all along the way, but they're still positive. You're still getting fitter. So the sweet spot comes just before the level where you actually start to get worse <laughs> by adding more violence. but you're, you're just breaking yourself down and piling fatigue on your body. So, and that's, it's a little bit of a moving target because when, you know, it takes, they call it training to train, you know, it takes some time to develop the, you know, the the infrastructure in your body to be able to handle, you know, your lifetime sweet spot of volume. And it's really, it's so individual that it's a little bit of an experiment. Like, you know, it's, it's a structured experiment. You're not just, you know, putting yourself through the meat grinder, but you, you don't really know what your sweet spot is going to be until you discover it.
0: How do you know when an athlete has figured out their sweet spot?
1: you know the the most common way is is breaking down actually like either getting injured or just you know becoming going from functional to non-functional overreaching where you just you can feel yourself getting less fit even though you're running more so you know, it sounds like it's, okay, well, you have to just push them off the cliff. Well, kind of, yeah, but it's like, you're not really going off a cliff. You know, it's not the end of the world. If you overcook yourself, you know, a couple of times in, in training, like because there's a lot of value in it. It's like, okay, well, there's my limit. <laughs> you know, Ben actually, he, he tries to be a little more conservative because, you know, he's training people whose livelihood depends on staying healthy and fit. So he just tends to be pretty conservative and he'll, you know, he'll gradually bring. Athletes along in that process. And he'll often kind of cap their mileage when, you know, before they go off the cliff, when it just seems like, hey, you know, you're winning races. So why, you know, it ain't broke. So let's not fix it. So that's another way when you're just, if you've gone through the process and you're running a lot more than you were at the beginning and you're feeling great and you're performing well and you're happy with your results, you can just sort of hang out there and spare yourself learning the hard way what your limit is.
0: One thing you, I thought was an interesting tidbit from the book on volume and how much you should run, you make the suggestion as well as Ben, that when you're first starting out, like not to make mileage a goal, instead just make time your goal. Why, is it, why do you think it's better to focus on time and not mileage?
1: It's really because your body doesn't adapt to exposure to mileage. It, it adapts to exposure to time. And so time, when you measure by time, it's a great equalizer, You know, if I had, you know, if I were leading a workout for a group of 20 runners of all different fitness levels, and I wanted them to have an equal challenge, I would make, I could do so by by making the workout time-based versus distance-based to, you know, to get concrete. For example you know, most people listening probably are familiar with the concept of VO2 max, which is an exercise intensity associated with your maximal breathing rate when your muscles are consuming oxygen as fast as they possibly can. So not a full sprint, but, but a very high, kind of the highest sustainable intensity of exercise. Now, whether you are very, very moderately fit, or you are an elite runner, you can probably sustain the pace associated with your VO2 max for about six minutes. So obviously that pace will be a lot faster for an elite runner, but it's still, that's an intensity you can sustain for about six minutes, whether you're not that fit or you're extremely fit. So when you're looking at, well, if you want to develop your VO2 max by exposing yourself to that intensity and in training, it makes sense to make it time-based because no matter how fit you are, you, you can be confident that it's an appropriate challenge level for you. And it, same thing goes when you're looking at like just how much running can your body handle, you know, take the runner, the elite doing 120 miles per week. Well, that's only about 12 hours of running, you know? And so if you're a much slower runner, 12 hours of running for you might actually be doable in a week, but you're only going to cover, you know, maybe 70 miles in that time versus 120.
0: So, I mean, you give this great example, say like you're starting out, right? Like you like, I want to get into running using this time-based approach. Like what would a training schedule look like? like would it be just like, you, would you schedule an hour Hour long blocks?
1: Yeah. I mean, if you're, you know, a raw beginner, you know, let's just say you've been doing some exercise, but no running, you know, because of the high impact nature of running, you know, injury risk is sky high in those first steps. And so I'm very cautious with, you know, that it's sort of like an inoculation, you know, those first few, few runs you do. So I would have people, many, if, especially if they're overweight or older, I might have them start with walk runs. So, you know, run a minute, walk four minutes, run a minute, walk four minutes, do that for 30 minutes. And then I would also have people, now some people can, they don't, they can skip that step. They can, they can go ahead and just run for 30 minutes. But even if you're one of those people, I would not have you run again for 48 hours because your your body needs time to absorb all that stress and then, you know, remodel the affected tissues, the bones, the the muscles, the connective tissues, and just actually emerge stronger. So give yourself 48 hours before you expose yourself to another dose of repetitive impact. And then just go from there. You know, it's just, you know, step by step, you know, give yourself, you know, you know, you know, maybe at least 10 days at a certain level of running and see, see if you can handle it, and that sort of earns you the right to take the next step. Eventually, you can get to the point where you can start running on consecutive days. Again, where that threshold is depends on your starting point and how you seem to be absorbing the progression. The thing that I recommend that everyone, any, any, anyone who has ambitions of just kind of like seeing what they can do as a runner, I give them sort of like an initial target of seven hours. Like try, no matter how long it takes, no matter where your starting point is, try to see if you can get up to seven hours of running per week which is, you know, it's about an hour per day, every day, you you can do a lot with that amount of running, you can you can achieve most goals that most amateur runners would want to achieve for themselves. And it's, you know, it's a commitment, but uh, most people can also fit that into their lifestyles.
0: Yeah, I think that the time approach is really a lot more because I think the mileage thing can get really debilitating for people. And it can also just cause them to just run themselves in the ground. I think like you said, that's where a lot of injuries because you're trying to like I got to get 20 miles this week well no maybe not maybe you just if you, as long as you get seven hours and you're good
1: yes yeah it, yeah it makes a lot of sense yeah it takes uh, it makes it seem less daunting for sure
0: <laughs> yeah we're gonna take a quick break for your word from our sponsors so i read that this spring this summer it's going to be the biggest wedding season so whether you're going to be a groom in a wedding party or a lucky guest everyone wants to look their best for a wedding. With a custom fitted suit from Indochino, you'll look great, feel confident, and enjoy the big day without fussing over your clothes. Create a suit that fits you and your style perfectly with options for fabrics, lapel shape, custom monograms, statement linings, and more. And here's the thing, Indochino's custom made to measure suits start from just $429 and shirts from $79. I've used Indochino in the past. I've talked about my navy blue suit that I got from Indochino, still wearing it, Still fits great. Still feels great. Easy to do. The measuring process is easy to go through. In a few weeks, you have a custom made-to-measure garment sent directly to your door. If you got a big day coming up, getting the perfect look is no big deal with Indochino. Get $50 off any purchase of $399 or more by using promo code MANLINESS at Indochino.com. That's $50 off of a purchase of $399 or more at Indochino.com. Promo code MANLINESS. Check it out today. Whether it's stress, a demanding morning schedule, or trouble sleeping, we all know that sometimes life keeps you up. And trying to conquer the day after a night of tossing and turning is not so easy. Now you can get the sleep you deserve with zequil, Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies. ZQIL Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies are designed to help you fall asleep naturally with no next day grogginess. Made with an optimal level of melatonin combined with a proprietary blend of other botanicals like chamomile and lavender, ZQIL Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies help to regulate your sleep cycle instead of just knocking you out non-habit forming and work with your body to help you get the sleep you need. And to top it all off, they come in a great tasting wild berry vanilla flavor. So I've been using Z-Quil Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies for the past month now. Really have enjoyed it. I've used melatonin in the past to help me fall asleep when I've had trouble falling asleep. I like the Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies because, well, it comes in a gummy format and who does not like gummies? The botanical blend helps you feel nice and relaxed, drift off to sleep. And the next day, don't feel groggy. Check out Z-Quil Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies and the full line of Pure Z Sleep Aids to start sleeping soundly today. And now back to the show. Oh, let's talk about the, the speed. And because we've been talking about, okay, you do all this volume. Oftentimes they're doing it at a very low intensity, but they're not just doing low intensity work. There's also, they're mixing in high intensity work. But like generally like, okay, how how do elite runners figure out like what is low intensity from like how hard to go cuz i've read different things about that there's that whole you know the heart rate model you use like well you're you know you do 180 minus your age and then you do like 70% of that are elite runners doing that or are they doing something different
1: yeah they're doing something different it, you know there's there's been you know a coalescing around this concept of the first ventilatory threshold which is most exercise scientists now consider that the, the proper dividing line between low intensity and moderate intensity. You know, for the typical runner, it falls somewhere between 77 and 81 percent of their individual maximum heart rate, and that's a number that varies a lot. So you can't use, you can't use a formula for it. Conveniently, that threshold what happens there, and the reason it's important, is that if you're just below that threshold, it's actually a lot less stressful. On your body than if you're just above it. That's why it is a true threshold. It's not, and there's a spike in the breathing rate that occurs there. It's not hyperventilation. You're not even conscious of it. You would have to, you know, just be breathing into a mask that collects your exhaled gases to, to know wh- where that threshold actually lies. But the reason is, is that it's important is that if you if you go from just below it to just above it your brain has to start recruiting different types of muscle fibers in order to keep up with the demand that your muscles are putting on it. And it's just, it's sort of like, it's almost literally like flipping a switch. And so it just, it makes it more stressful to your autonomic nervous system. So it takes a little bit longer to recover from, which is fine if you do that once. But if you do it habitually, then you're creating this chronic burden of never fully processed fatigue that just kind of stops you from getting All you can, all the benefit you ought to be getting from the running you're doing. The convenient thing is that, you know, that threshold aligns with the the fastest running pace at which you can carry on a conversation comfortably. And so, you know, one advantage that elite runners have in that regard is that. They can run pretty darn fast in absolute terms and still be below that threshold just because they're, they're so fit. And most elite runners, they, you know, the team I trained with, they train in groups and they actually are having conversations when they're, when they're doing their low intensity runs. So that's what they do. They just go out there. Most of them are not wearing heart rate monitors. They're, they're barely even paying attention to their pace. They're just, you know, just jogging along comfortably, having a conversation and it gets the job done without really much fussing about you know, the, the objective numbers.
0: Okay, so most of their training is done just below this threshold. And if you can have a conversation, you're, you're probably good. Yep. But you know, runners also have to do some high-intensity work because you want to be able to practice for that kick at the end, right? If you're running a, a marathon, usually you're, kinda, you're running harder at the end. So you can, if you need to beat someone, you can. How do elite runners incorporate high-intensity training if they're doing most of their work with low-intensity volume?
1: Yep. It's really, um, you know, the simplest way to think about it is in terms of like on a per session basis or per, you know, per run basis. So, you know, the typical elite runner is running usually 13 times per week. So twice a day, six days, and then like one easy run on, on their quote unquote rest day. And of those 13 runs, usually three involve are, are sort of focused on more intense efforts. So it's about, one out of every three runs is set aside for for harder work. And that ratio works pretty well, no matter what your running frequency is. So if you run three times a week, you know, one run should be high intensity. If you run six times per week, two should be, and so on. So that's really the way, the way they approach it. And it's like, you know, they train in in microcycles that have a recurring structure. So they just get in a nice rhythm with their training. It's You know, one or two easy days, then a hard day, one or two easy days, hard day. And so it becomes very predictable. They know what their body can handle. They work hard on the hard days, but they have the time to regenerate between hard days and and it works.
0: On those high intensity days, are they trying to reach certain speed, heart rate? Like what are they, what's the goal there usually?
1: There's a great variety of, you know, because... Really, so when I say, you know, higher intensities, I'm really talking about everything in the, in that kind of moderate to maximal range, which is a very broad range. There's a lot you can do there. So it's not all one type of workout, you know, so I was training for a marathon with that group as were most of the real pros on the team. So, you know, marathon pace for them, you know, for, you know, for, for the male runners, you're talking about like two hours and 10 minutes is, is their marathon pace. And for the women, you know, 225 to 230. So, you know, that's not a high intensity, that's a moderate intensity, you know, a pace you could sustain for more than two hours. And so there was a fair amount of work that would be sort of like, you know, that's not an easy run either, though. So when we did marathon pace workouts, it would be like a fairly high volume of work at that somewhat aggressive pace. And then other days would be much, much more intense than that. So short blasts of speed with active or passive recoveries between them. And then, you know, sort of in between those, you would have some longer intervals, like fast, but not quite that fast. And then, you know, like tempo runs, which are faster than marathon pace, but, you know, maybe slower than 5k or 10k pace. And so there's, there's just quite a bit of variety and so, you know, I practically did not ever do the same workout twice during during the 13 weeks I was there because it's like, well, if you've already done it, let's not do it again. Let's progress from there. And, and generally what you're trying to do is get more and more specific to the demands of whatever you're actually trying to train for.
0: All right. So I guess the, the takeaway, the principle there, every third workout, do some sort of high intensity. Again, high intensity is like moderate to high, like your heart feels like it's going to come yeah. out of your chest. Uh, there's different ways you can do that, but again, I think the principle, like the overarching principle, that I got from that part was most of your stuff's going to be low intensity volume. That's where they spend most of their time because it, it allows you to get that get the most fitness, but also just doesn't beat you beat you up. So it allows you to train more, and it, the more you train, the better you're going to be.
1: Yeah, you know, one thing that you know for for those who are like having trouble wrapping their head around like, why why is that the best way? One thing that yeah, I think most people don't know that kind of makes sense of all this is like, you know, if you take like a very, very challenging, you know, high intensity interval workout. So like, you know, going to the track and running one hard lap, so 400 meters, a quarter mile, and then recovering and then doing it again and then doing it again and say doing it, you know, 12 times. So, you know, 12 times a hard quarter mile, with recoveries between them. If you do that type of run like as like your bread and butter, like that's the main type of training you do and you don't do a lot of easy running and you have another runner who does a lot of easy running and only does that type of workout occasionally, the runner who does a ton of easy running will destroy (laughs) the other runner who specializes in that type of workout. Absolutely destroy them. So that's what you're getting from all that easy running. It actually allows you to do now, if you do all easy running, you're you're going to have a, a a very bad time going at the track. But if it's mostly easy and just a sprinkling of those hard interval workouts, it actually makes you better at the hard interval workouts. You're it's not that it's either good or bad. You're just you're getting the most out of it if you're doing most of your running at low intensity.
0: Well, let's talk about something I've whenever I read popular press about running. There's a lot of emphasis on running form, right? You got to be a midfoot striker. you don't want to be a heel lander. Maybe you should get a running coach if you want to up your running game. Do the pros worry about that stuff?
1: No, not not very much. You know, I I I mentioned in the book that, you know, during the three plus months I was in Flagstaff, Ben, the coach of the team, he didn't correct my form once or, you know, manipulate it or, you know, ask me to change it a single time. And I did not see him do that with any of the the pros on the team. And that was pretty much expected. You know, I've been involved in the sport long enough to know that running technique is not emphasized at the elite level. Now, that could be for one of two reasons, right? It could be one one potential reason is that, well, they all have perfect form. That's how they became pros. And so there's nothing to fix. The other possible reason is that sort of batting practice for running (laughs) is not actually an effective way to get better at running. And it turns out that the latter is true. That like running form matters and running form can and should change, but you can't manipulate it consciously. It actually it has it's counterproductive, and there's a lot of science showing this. If you if you tell a runner who runs X-way, no, you gotta run Y r- Y Ray, and you and you measure their running economy, their efficiency uh, before and after. No matter what you have them change, <laughs> no matter how textbook it looks, no matter how much you know prettier their form looks, they've gotten less efficient. So the key is to run naturally. And there are there are ways you can evolve your stride to make it more efficient through actually, you know, strength training and plyometric training helps. Just running a lot helps, running at different intensities helps, helps getting fitter, helps, losing weight helps. So there's there's lots of ways to evolve your running form. But uh, like you know, just intentionally like landing differently with your foot on the ground and stuff like that is not the way to go.
0: Yeah, and you you highlight there are elite runners who are heel strikers and they're they're doing all right. They just had maybe they're training yep. is different because they it does put a lot of stress on their their lower limbs, but it works for them. Yeah, I think the point you too that's the other point is like why you should run a lot at a low intensity. The more you run, the better you're running will get. Like your body's going to adapt to find the most efficient form for you.
1: Yes. They, they call it a self-optimizing system. And you know, what's going on you know, with every single stride you take, your brain and your the rest of your body are talking to each other. <laughs> and so your brain's kind of like listening, like, how's it going down there? And it's like, if you measure you know, running mechanics with sophisticated accelerometers and, and you know, force plates and stuff, what you see is actually no two strides that any runner takes are identical. There's a little, you know, little bit of play in the stride continuously that you can't see with the naked eye. And you know, there's no way to eliminate that. And you wouldn't want to because that play allows for your nervous system to look for more efficient ways to get the job done. Actually, your running form changes over the course of a single run because you, you're, you will unconsciously adjust your form to make up for fatigue starting to set in. So you know, this unconscious system is way smarter <laughs> than your conscious brain. So you, you sort of just have to get out of the way and, and let it do its thing.
0: Okay, so the takeaway there, don't worry too much about your form. Pretty much. Yeah, if you, as long as you run a lot, your, your form will get will optimize, self-optimize. Uh, let's talk about recovery how do pros approach recovery differently from the amateurs?
1: You know, the interesting thing there is that you might think, oh yeah, the pros are doing, you know, all the fancy expensive stuff like, you know, supplements and, you know, cryotherapy and compression boots and, you know, massage guns. And yeah, I mean, they do they do some of that, but but really, you know, what the science shows is that, and it kind of makes sense. Like, The things that make a real big impact with recovery are the basics, the low tech stuff. So, you know, rest, sleep, (laughs) nutrition, and stress management are, are the big ones. Like those are foundational. And pretty much, you know, if you're doing those four things well consistently, then you're getting about, you know, probably 98% of the recovery that you could possibly get. And then that other stuff, you know, the supplements and the, Compression boots can maybe get you that other, you know, one or two percent.
0: There's a study done on, I guess, at these runs. There's like tents you can go to where you can get compression boots and like massage stuff. And I think that the study they found, correct me if I'm wrong, is like the athletes who go to that stuff more do worse than the athletes who don't go to it. Don't get that stuff done. Yeah,
1: that, yeah, that was actually from the Olympic Training Center. So it, it was actually Olympic-level athletes. So even, even at that level, they found that, yeah, the, they had a recovery center at the Olympic Training Center. And just the guy who operated that facility kept track of who used it. And he found that the people who used it least were most likely to win medals. <laughs> so, yeah, kind of interesting. And, and so, yeah, and, and then if you look at sort of like the competitive recreational runner... I think what you see is a lot of people, they, they use the gizmos and the high-tech stuff as a way to make up for not doing the basics, right? So it's like, well, I don't get enough sleep, but that's okay because I got my compression boots. It's like, my diet's crap, but that's okay because I take all these supplements. It doesn't work like that. So if there's, if there's any benefit in the high-tech stuff, you're only going to get it if you're already taking care of the basics.
0: So yeah, when you were at this camp, you were what sleeping ten hours a night, and then also you're getting a nap, like an hour nap during the day, correct?
1: Well, that was the guy. That was the real pro runner I was living with when I was there, a guy named Matt Yano. So yeah, he was sleeping ten hours a night and and napping one or two hours in in the afternoon. I, when I was there, like I'm just not a napper. Like I. I I have to have the flu. And then even then, if I went, but when I wake up from my nap, I'm still a zombie for the rest of the day. So I'm like, you know, forget it. No way am I going to nap. But you know, when, when we got really, really deep into the, the training, I started napping too. (laughs) I saw, okay, this is why they do it. Just, yeah. In order, I was just, I was ready for it. You know, I was, my body was telling me, Hey dude, in order to, you know, be able to sustain this this workload, you're going to need a little bit more shut eye. But yeah, I mean, you hear that 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 the pros sleep a lot, and you know, I was living with with one of them there, and I could, I saw firsthand that yep, he made it a priority.
0: All right, so get sleep. The pros, of course, are also taking care of nutrition for the recovery. But you're talking about the book; they're not really big on you. You can't eat this, you can't eat that. Uh, they just eat a lot of natural, unprocessed foods, lots of different high quality foods. And uh, you mentioned this in the book. That means for a lot of the pros they're getting about 60 to 7% of their food from carbs. Uh, so pros are running a, on a high-carb diet. And then the other thing for recovery is just stress management. And for the pros, they basically don't do anything except run and then just hang out, basically. So just hanging out, relaxing. For the average Joe, they don't have that luxury just to hang out when they're not running, they have to go to work. But you, you talk about, the, you can employ standard stress management practices like you know meditation, breathing exercises, things like that. You also mentioned that part of the recovery process for pros and just staying optimally fit is doing cross-training. What does that look like?
1: Yeah, you know, and th- this is one, it's like, a, it's really an, an untapped resource for a lot of recreational runners. Is, you know, most humans and, and definitely most recreational runners, they actually, you know, we talked about that mileage sweet spot before, but really, you know, because running is so hard on the body, uh, you know, through that repetitive impact, Most runners, when they hit their sweet spot where they they just can't handle any more running, they still have untapped potential to gain aerobic fitness. And the only way to mine that potential is to get aerobic training in some other modality, right? Because you're already doing as much running as you can do, but there's nothing stopping you from doing something else, you know, swimming, cycling, cross-country skiing, rowing, whatever it is. You can actually gain, you know, a little bit extra aerobic fitness without increasing your injury risk because you're not subjecting your your body to any more pounding. So the pros, like you know, they, they definitely because you know they're paid to run, they try to get all of their fitness through running, and they will only supplement with cross training if if it's apparent that they can't get to the mountaintop through running alone, but they're very quick to do it. You know, they won't, they won't hesitate for a second. You know, a lot of runners, they're like, well, I don't like that doing that other stuff. I just want to run. And then, so they just go from all to nothing. You know, they run until they get injured and then they do nothing for six weeks (laughs) while they heal. And you know, that's, that's no way to do it. And interestingly, when I was halfway through my fake pro runner stint in Flagstaff, I got injured and i cross trained like a maniac and it was actually a pretty serious injury as a you know a strain in a, a hip abductor tendon and you know, i was in the hands of the support team there with their you know physical therapist and you know even shoot i had a was even seeing a, a sports psychologist while i was there and i made this you know a, what what felt to me like a miraculous recovery And I I was just so much fitter than I thought I could be, even though like I had there was a period when I wasn't able to do much running at all while I was healing. But because of all that cross training, I was able to pick right back up where I left off and and like I said, still run my fastest marathon.
0: Yeah, one type of cross training that I saw in there was treadmill hill climbs, which is it was funny when I saw like my wife, she's a runner. And for a long time she kind of settled in. Like she does the treadmill, she'll just what she'll do is she'll put the treadmill at the highest incline you can go and just walk while she watches law and order. And uh, I was like, "That's pretty silly. Like, what? What? That, that's how's that supposed to help you running?" Then I read this, like, "Oh my gosh, you're vindicated. Like, you figured out <laughs> this principle, and it and it works." And it, she says it works for her. it helps her out a lot.
1: Yeah, it's good stuff because if you think about it, like the you know what you're doing is very very similar to running. You know, if you want the fitness you get from cross training to transfer back to fitness, then you should choose something that is fairly similar. And incline treadmill walking is you know, it's, it's not no impact, it's low impact. So you're still getting a little bit of impact, which is actually good. And then, you know, you're using it's, you know, it's weighted and you're using, you know, sequential movements of your legs, just like you do in running. It's just, uh, yeah, it does look a little goofy, but it works, like you said.
0: It works. Well, let's talk about mindset now, generally how pro runners approach it differently from amateur runners. And this kind of segues nicely to our our conversation we had last time, a couple of years ago about your other book, How Bad Do You Want It? What approach do pros take when it comes to sort of the psychology of performance that amateurs don't?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I love this topic as you know already, because, you know, quite honestly, yeah, I mean, you know, the pro runners I, I was around at that time and others I've I've gotten to know, I mean, they are impressive physical specimens, right? I mean, they're gifted, they work hard, they're fitter than you can imagine. They can do things, you know, run, you know, sustain speeds that are just draw, jaw-dropping. So, they are physically different from, you know, you and me. But they're also they're they're also very different in characteristic ways above the neck, and that is really cool to me. You know, like you know, the, the, I think there were about twelve or thirteen runners on the team when I was there, and there were just certain characteristics, like you know, psychological characteristics that they all had that you know y- you had to think were part of the the formula for their success. And in, and in point of fact, of those twelve or thirteen runners, only one of them was like a, a blue chip prospect in high school. You know, someone who was like this guy as a generational talent. All the rest were like good, not great in high school, good, not great in college, but they were the ones with, you know, shoe contracts as adults because they had enough physical talent, but they also had it going on between the ears. And it was the the combination of those two things that made them great. And I didn't quite answer your question, but I wanted to just impress on people that like, it's not just physical.
0: (laughs) Well, So what are some of the psychological traits that you saw in common with these guys?
1: You know, one is like, just like the thing that I think would be most surprising to, you know, the folks listening is like, I saw a lot of runners during the 13 weeks I was there, a lot of the pros abandoned workouts, quit workouts way more than like, you know, the, the amateur runners I coach are, they would rather die than bail out of a workout. The pros do it all the time. And the reason they do it is not that they're lazy or mentally weak it's because they're smart <laughs> you know because like I, I remember one runner on the team uh, Scott Fobble a 209 marathoner. He, he bailed out of a workout and I said, hey, you know what what, what went wrong? Why, why'd you quit? He said, well, I'm developing a sinus infection and I figured you know if I, I I've had these before and if I force it now I could lose a week. but if I quit while I'm ahead, I, I should be back up to 100 percent in two three days and that's so hard for for most people to do it seems like an easy thing right oh it's just being rational but it's just that sort of that sort of that kind of confidence and trust in the process that allows them to push when it's time to push but also to exercise discipline and restraint you know they don't live and die by today's performance you know they understand the context and so they're just a little bit more relaxed and centered And, you know, I guess the way I I was talking about it with Ben recently, and we agreed that amateur runners try to win the workout, and pro runners try to win the process. I mean, that's a key distinction.
0: Yeah, I think that's a, that's a key distinction. I know in my own experience with barbell training, when I f- was first getting started, I was like, r- I got you know, really serious about it. I went through this period like if I had a bad workout, I just got all pissy and just like angry, and like it ruined my day. Yeah, but it reached a point where I like I can't do that. Like it's just it's a it's a bad workout. Like you have one bad work, it doesn't mean you're going to have a bad performance when you compete.
1: Yeah, one thing I tell I've started, especially you know coming away from that experience in, in 2017, that I tell the runners I work with all the time is that you should only judge your fitness. And if you want your running ability by your best workouts, because you cannot perform better in a workout than your fitness allows, right? Like there are no flukes. Like you can't just pull it out of thin air. Like if if you're able to perform at a certain level on a given day, it's because you're fit enough to do so. (laughs) There's no other possible reason but there are there's a myriad of reasons where you could underperform in a given workout. So, you know, if if you have a sort of like a mediocre workout or lay an egg, it could be because you slept poorly last night or you you're you know developing a little bit of a bug or or simply because you're a little bit tired from previous training. So, that's like that stuff, you know, you, you just need to brush it off and as long as like your last really good workout isn't too far in the past, then 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 judge your fitness by that and know you're okay. And don't worry about the the mediocre workouts.
0: Well, what do pros do differently? So, like, say they're at a competition and they gotta like they're they're feeling uncomfortable, they're hurting, and they've got to put in that last kick so they can you know perform, like get do the best they can. What do pros do differently to dig deep during competition?
1: You know, the, the, there's some variety there, but Ben, he he says, he has this term he likes, uh, he got it from his high school coach, the champion's mindset. And he said, champions in those moments, they relish it. They view it as their time. It, it, it sort of reminds me a bit of that that old joke, you know, if, if you and a friend are being chased by a bear, you don't have to be faster than the bear, you just have to be faster than your friend. You know, like running hurts, you know, like long distance running races are They're suffer fest. They're very, very uncomfortable. And that's true for everyone. And, you know, there are instincts in all of us that recoil from, you know, subjecting ourselves to that kind of misery. But the champions, their attitude is not like, this sucks. I wish it didn't suck so much. Their attitude is, if I can suffer just a little bit more (laughs) than these chumps around me, it's my race. And, And so that's their mindset. It's like they don't have to. They don't have to like it. They just have to just embrace it just a little bit more than than the people around them.
0: Well, Matt, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work?
1: Anywhere books are sold, I'm told anyway, by the publisher. And for more about me and my other books, my training plans, there's my personal website, mattfitzgerald.org and my business website, 8020endurance.com.
0: Fantastic. Well, Matt Fitzgerald, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. You bet. My guest today was Matt Fitzgerald. He is a co-author of the book, Run Like a Pro, Even If You're Slow. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about Matt's work at his website, mattfitzgerald.org. Also check out our show notes at aom.is run, where you can find links to resources and we delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the A1 Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanless.com where you find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you can think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to StitcherPremium.com, sign up, use code MANLESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the A1 Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member if you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. your you on Listen to the Podcast, but put what you've heard into action. You're finally at that hot new spot. The one your friends keep raving about. Sitting across from your date. It's going... Another round? Really well. And that dish you've been dying to try? Oh, it's headed your way. You can smell it. It's sizzling fresh off that skillet as it comes closer, closer and served. Go ahead. Enjoy. After your phone sneaks a bite first, when you're with Amex, it's not if it's going to happen, but when. American Express. Don't live life without it.